Thank you very much for the kind invitation. I haven't spoken for a while, and actually, I spoke a couple of weeks ago, but I hadn't I hadn't spoken for probably two years with COVID going on, and and uh, speaking to a group like today takes me obviously back down into what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. And uh, our stories, my story goes right back and I'll just kick it around. Uh, my, I have a substance use disorder. I cannot safely consume ethyl alcohol. Uh, my last drink, uh, I celebrate May 10th, 1994, Nashville, Tennessee. I was five days shy of my 49th birthday. And uh, what a gift of desperation this was. And I'll get to how that happened. Oh, maybe I'll, I'll touch on it. I'm, <clears throat> I'm in Nashville because I, with a global corporation. I've been very successful. As I said, I'm almost 49 years old, uh, corner office. I have people, businesses I'm responsible for in a hundred countries and uh, there's an intervention at work and the workplace raised the bottom to hit me and it saved my life. I thought, of course, it was the worst thing that ever happened. I'm a corner, I was my ego. Bill Wilson, uh, the AA, one of the AA founders said, we've got to break our egos, our big egos down deep. And boy, did that ever break my big ego down deep. And I say now, don't leave before you hear the pop, which is in my case, the pop was the sound of my head coming out of my ass. Um, one of my sponsors said, Dennis, that the whole world looks shitty is because you got your head up your ass. And I didn't know. Alcohol had taken over and had done it so subtly. And I'll, and I'll get to that. Um, what was happening is I was making the workplace unsafe for myself and others. I was responsible for big events. So we were sponsoring the Tucson Open, for example. And I was also doing advanced marketing programs and various and development programs in various parts of the world. And I was responsible for executive education. I was responsible for uh, the advancement uh, as quickly as possible of uh, women and minorities in the corporation. Uh, we had a very firm focus on that, especially in the United States. Um, and with the intervention at work, uh, I couldn't be fired because I have a treatable illness. And the reason I couldn't be fired, I'm a Canadian, I'm working in the United States. The reason I can't be fired is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the Americans with Disabilities Act because of the work of a remarkable gay woman in Alcoholics Anonymous named Marty Mann. She's known as the First Lady of AA. Uh, Marty Mann did the work to have uh, alcoholism declared a disease and included in the American Di with Disabilities Act. 
and I won't go into the American Disabilities Act, but it's very interesting, the story of how it came about a Vietnam veteran. I was thinking of you, Grant, came back from, from Nam. Uh, he was uh, wounded, so he used the, the VA to get a scholarship into, I think it was Berkeley. And he's going to school, uh, he's disabled, I, and, uh, <clears throat> but he's going to university. He befriends somebody that's in a wheelchair that has a, uh, can't control their emotions. And uh, anyway, they're studying late one night, they decided to go for a breakfast and uh, they went to IHOP and he unloads this guy from his car and you know, the wheelchair, <laughs> wheels him up into the restaurant and uh, a fellow sitting there and they're waiting to be served. And the waitress comes over and said, uh, we're not gonna serve you, not, not gonna serve you. And why? Because of him, he's making everybody feel uncomfortable. And uh, the man said, I, I wanna talk to the manager. The manager came, manager says, no, you're gonna have to leave. And I'm not leaving, I'm gonna call the police, go ahead. The police come and they get arrested. Both of them are put in jail because of what is known as the as the Circus Act, which was, I think at that time, still in force in 30 some odd states, the United States, it's to keep the circus people from coming to town and making the locals feel uncomfortable. So that's how we treated others in society that weren't like us. And because of Again, Marty Mann, she got alcoholism, declared a disease, wrapped in the Americans. Dennis doesn't get fired. Dennis thinks it'd look good if, uh, if he goes to Alcoholics Anonymous, that'd look good in my corporate record. And I go to AA, I have no interest in it whatsoever. Uh, I figure it's just a bunch of losers. I have this prejudice, prejudging that an alcoholic is somebody that, I, I used to see one occasionally driving to work. If I went through downtown Nashville, there was a fellow that uh, lived in a bus bus stop, bus kiosk, and uh, all his stuff was under the bench, and people knew it, and they just let it go. And he would be standing out in the street, and he had a sign that said, uh, "Hangry, H-A-N-G-R-Y, hangry, will work for food." And I called him hangry, and hangry was an obvious alcoholic to me. Blah blah blah. I came to AA in Nashville and they gave me the AA guarantee. They said, Dennis, if you don't take the first drink, you will not get drunk. <laughs> Shit. I'd spent 32 years not drinking this, not drinking that, not drinking at this place, not doing, you know, any bitty shitty committee having a meeting in my head, the disease. Calls in and said, <clears throat> we're going to be drinking today, Dennis. Uh, you know, dress it up any way you want. No, no, I can't. I've got this. And yeah, yeah, I know. Dennis. Maybe just a beer at lunch. That's not going to. And there it goes. And it's right from the time I wake up, I'm bargaining and scheming and I have no idea I'm doing it. No idea. It's that subtle and my illness knows me better than I do. Dennis cannot drink safely. It's a Buddhist concept. Alcohol for Dennis is, is alcohol itself is neither good nor bad. Just for Dennis, it's not to do. 
And as one of my sponsors, when I was carping about the fact that other people could still drink, uh, he said, Dennis, he said, you've got to remember there's nothing wrong with alcohol. It's just people like you that gave it a bad name. Some people can drink. <laughs> Dennis isn't one of them. <clears throat> I arrived on... Uh, this little spaceship of ours on the 15th of May, 1945. I'm from what is known as the silent generation. I'm the generation that preceded, I'm the last, the generation that preceded the baby boomers who were born in 1946. I was born, the war in Europe had just gotten, had just completed. The uh, war in Asia was still ongoing. The first atomic bomb had not been uh, set off yet. So I'm pre-atomic age as well. I'm coal-fired and steam-driven. I'm a mechanical engineer by education. And I studied thermodynamics and fluidics. Um, I come from a very blue-collar railroad family. Uh, I was the third of six. I was the youngest of the oldest. Older brother, older sister. Uh, Roman Catholics, uh, family of origin, white, Canadian. I'm part Austrian, part French, four parts Irish. Born into an English speaking, blue collar kid. My father gets tuberculosis when I'm five years old and he's gone for the next five years or so. And there's six children. We're living in my grandmother's uh, rooming house. And uh, basically everybody's too busy to keep their eye on me. So I get to run free. Well, <laughs> Lord of the flies. And uh, along with my neighborhood kids and et cetera, I start to make myself up along with the programming of my grandmother. It was obviously the matriarch and uh, my mother and I got four sisters and an older brother and yada, yada, yada. And, I'm going to church and I'm getting programmed in church and then I'm going to uh, a Roman Catholic school and I'm getting programmed by the priests and the nuns and I would strongly suggest that you do not let celibate men and women teach your children about sexuality. They seldom get it right. As a matter of fact, when I came to the fifth step of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, moral inventory i thought they just want to know about my sex life because when you say moral to me it was all it was roman catholic morality moral was immoral was you got to say a decade of the rosary for that or who knows what happened but uh, i used to make shit up in the confessional anyway and i was taught the god of my understanding as a child was uh, god to be feared God that was watching, elf on the shelf God that was a punishing God. I asked the priest I sponsored uh, years ago, I said, he was Anglican and I was raised Roman Catholic. I said, what's the difference between Anglicans and Roman Catholics? He says, uh, we have better music and less guilt. And I like that. I, I don't know why it was, but when I was raised, it was all about guilt. Genocide. 
talk about being programmed by television and movies. I'm eight years old and I'm wearing my little cowboy outfit. I've got little cowboy boots on. I'm in the movie theater and I'm cheering like mad as the seventh cavalry or <clears throat> the United States are killing all those thieving, lying, no good, cheating, sneaky Indians. And there I am cheering on genocide. And I have no idea that's what's been packaged and presented to me, but that's reality. Yahoo. I had to work for my clothing and treats uh, from before I was 10. Uh, one of my first jobs was on a horse-drawn milk wagon, running milk in and out and bottles and butter and stealing any change I could get away with. Uh, I washed and waxed floors at home. That was one of my jobs. Uh, I worked as soon as I turned 16 at a tire and appliance store. I was out changing truck tires on the highways. Uh, I went through grade 13. I was raised in a small town in uh, Ontario named Stratford. It has an Avon River and it's a very part, we're near London, Ontario. It's very English, it's Upper Canada. I'm again, blue collar. I'm not part of all that. I'm railroad people. I leave at 18 uh, to go and uh, live with my father in Toronto. Uh, he's come back from the sanitarium, but uh, his job disappeared in Stratford. He's moved to Toronto and I go to Toronto to live with him in a rooming house and um, get to know him. And he's quite an extraordinary fellow. And, but I was never really fathered. There wasn't a father there. He was a friend of mine. Drinking is a way of life. Family drinks, neighbors drink, movies drinking, TV drinking, parties drinking, good times drinking, bad times drinking, and church they're drinking wine. Uh, alcohol is just part of the whole rhythm of being. Um, nothing special. All my buddies were drinking. I drank uh, fist fights, all the rest of it, just the stupidity of being young and driving around the back roads and drinking and causing trouble. So I'm part of a drinking culture. And then I had moved to Toronto to work for Bell Canada as a lineman, digging holes, putting up poles, and that's what we drank, drank beer. Played baseball. Well, the University of Waterloo, uh, through a happenstance, uh, my employer being very gracious and encouraged me. And off I go to the University of Waterloo to study engineering. And uh, my first year, I majored in bridge and beer. Neither of those topics are on the uh, final exam. That cost me a year. But I'm like that, I'm tri-addicted. I get addicted to everything I try. It doesn't matter whether it's games, uh, electronic games, bridge, serious. I mean, that's just what I do. I go, wow, overboard, jump right in. I finished university and I've done well and I am in immediately in, management in Bell Canada sent off to Montreal to work in headquarters on innovating new technologies in telecommunications and uh, there I meet my 
by her power, who is still with me 51 years later in Montreal. And I joined the French Canadian drinking culture. Man, they really are savoir faire. They, they know how to drink with, uh, with class and they start doing it early in the morning. And I liked that too. It was allowed to do the, the beer places were open and man, I loved it. Uh, we had a bunch of buddies. We had a chalet up north of Montreal. Uh, we played chess all the time. We brought our girlfriends up there. We had a swimming pool and it was just magical. I was asked to move to one of our corporate uh, subsidiaries and I did that uh, with the opportunity to reinvent the telephone. This was in 1973. And the idea was uh, Marshall McLuhan's uh, Global Village, the question we'd, we asked ourselves in the previous less than 100 years, 100 million humans had been killed in our wars, religious wars, political wars. 100 million humans. And we knew that if you could get telephone service on demand as you could in Canada at lowest cost, uh, that over 80% of the population would purchase a telephone. Our theory was if humans could talk to each other around the world, would we stop killing each other? And then building on top of that theory and late 60s, as we were creating the digital world, digitizing the communications networks, uh, the opportunity <clears throat> through the <clears throat> defense, uh, defense advanced research projects in the United States to create the internet. And we did that. And the idea was to make knowledge available around the world. Would that change things? Education at a distance. And look what, here we are on Zoom. We did not imagine this could happen. I mean, it, it just is, you'll be put in the infrastructure. It's like giving somebody a hammer and some people go and kill people with it and other people build a fabulous building. And look what we've built here. And this is, you know, Tisnua, this is Ireland here. You're in my, you're literally in my office. It's a absolutely beautiful day it's early afternoon the sun's out my backyard is full of birds and wildlife i live 60 feet above a river and that's only possible because i went to alcox anonymous on the 10th of may 1994 and entirely skeptical and i met remarkable people And I hung around in the back of the room for a while and it was one of those traditional meetings and it was, uh, all I heard was blah, 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 God, blah, 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 God, God, blah, 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 God, blah, 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 God. Give me your hand, our father, we not having that, oh shit, this is just a religious cult, this bunch of nonsense. But again, I wanted to look good in my corporate records. So I went up to the, AA terrorist that was running the meeting that night said it like one of those temporary sponsors you offer and he, I'm a corporate executive and he says sure I got just the guy for hey Monty and he calls this kid over he's 25 years old and the kid says to me yeah I'll do you temporary sponsor he says uh, 
you want me to buy you a big book? And I said, no, I can buy a big book. But he says, you got to read the first 164 pages and underline everything that's the same for you. And that saved my life. Because I had started page one, sentence one, arguing with the whole thing, what a load of shit, blah, blah, blah. Ignore all that, Dennis. Look for what's the same for you. And I underlined it in red, and it was surprising how much of Dennis I found in there in various parts of that book in the first 164 pages. I'm an engineer scientist, so I read the thing literally in a day or two. I'm fascinated. And uh, I call a young fellow and I said, uh, All right, let's talk about it. I said, I read the first 164 pages. He says, All of it? I said, Yep. He says, Shit. He says, I haven't read all of it. <laughs> At least he was honest. He was, uh, he, he was just a remarkable young man. And uh, I went from contempt of this young fellow to realizing that he had a year of sobriety. And I hadn't been sober for a year since I was 15. And that's what I was there for. So I adopted the strategy as I'd learned uh, years earlier. I did some work in Malibu, California, um, trying to communicate with dolphins. And I may touch on that, but if I want to understand this belief system and it's not directly harmful to self and others, then I can accept it as if true. And I decided to accept what AA was talking about as if true for one year. And if at the end of that year, I was not significantly um, in a better state or was willing to continue on, then I would dump it at the end of a year based on the evidence, what happened, where am I, da, 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 da. And I can tell you unequivocally that at the end of the year, I was feeling so much better about the journey Dennis was on at that point in time. I realized I hadn't had fun at work for a long time, my fault. So I uh, asked and took early retirement. I was 50 years old. <laughs> People said, you can't retire, you're not old enough. I said, how old do you have to be? How much money do you need? What's life all about? Uh, so I retired to Florida to study the eldering journey because there were people there living out their lives. They called it God's waiting room. I was there for about 10 years, got tired of waiting. But when I went down there, I just didn't go down to lollygag in the sun. I went down, a friend of mine is a scientist uh, that I'd worked with years earlier, and he was in the Florida Department of Natural Resources, or Florida Department of Environmental Protection. And uh, they, we wanted to know how to, they wanted to know how to protect manatees. So he had a bright idea, which was a beautiful one. So we uh, had, funded the building of a hundred foot blimp, two engines on it and a cockpit and little seat belts. And uh, we flew over Tampa Bay to study manatees and to 
talk about the dyer as we understood it. They were going to bring bitumen, that uh, heavy, dirty fuel that we get from the tar pits from Venezuela in to fuel a, uh, one of their generators. And uh, if that stuff sinks to the bottom of Tampa Bay, which is the most incredible piece of water, uh, the whole thing dies because it's all predicated on the health of the seagrasses. And so it was these things that uh, while I was in my recovery and by going to Florida, unbeknownst to me, uh, AA really flourished. And there were, were elders, i.e. people in the long journeys in AA that, uh, that took me under their wing when they had what I wanted. And if I asked them for it, they showed me how they came about it. And these are truly remarkable people. One of my sponsors, my grand sponsor is Sister Ignatia, who is not even an alcoholic, but the little nun that worked with Dr. Bob. And I have a nun sister. My oldest sister got snagged by the Roman Catholic. She's cross addicted. So she's a nun and uh, she spent 35 years in Taiwan fighting for women's rights. Because in Taiwan, when she went there in the 60s, you could settle a gambling debt with women and children. It was a place taken over by the military, by the Chinese military, the Taiwanese, they were just stomped dirt, they were nothing. The indigenous people, and you can see there's still rancor going on there today. But she's one of my heroes. And so Sister Ignatia, and I studied Sister Ignatia and what she did, the little nun that loved alcoholics. She was tough. I spent time in Ireland and I love Ireland. And I love the Celts and I studied Celtic lore and history. Um, I had through happenstance in 1975, I spent uh, a week at a place called Findhorn in Scotland, which has written up a book called The Secret Life of Plants and it's called The Garden of Eden. And this was a uh, center of light, a spiritual center that they created in an old caravan park, trailer park in Flores. Uh, forest, that's what it is in Scotland, which was nothing. And out of it, they created this remarkable community of humans. And this is back in the 70s when we were recreating human societies, or at least people were. And I got invited, and they commune with plants. They, uh, they um, are, are attuned to the nature spirits. And I'm an engineer, scientist, and yeah, sure. And uh, I just fell in love with it, the whole idea of it. And I became attuned to gardening and to plants. And at one point in time in Florida, I had a butterfly garden and I raised 20 species of butterflies based on what we call patchy habitat. So when you're in a desolate urban environment or some other, create habitat which is appropriate to local conditions for butterflies with the plants they need and they will show up and cohabitate. And then we had tours of the garden along with other gardens and we took the 
funding from those tours and we used it to buy clothes for underprivileged children applying for their first jobs and for their first work. And I get to do all those things because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what did I eventually find here? I found a, a 12 step, it's a uh, program spiritual in its nature, each of the steps being a principle. And I can translate those steps into secular language. I can translate those steps into French. I can translate it into Italian. I can translate it into First Nations, i.e. they can do it. We, we can, we are welcome to translate that to whatever culture and belief system um, works for us. And again, by their fruit, she shall know them. As long as it's not harming self or others, have at it. I worked uh, in, I took a leave of absence from the corporation. I finished my project on reinventing the telephone and we did it. We reinvented all the componentry of it, electronics and yada yada and programmable. And off I went. Uh, to uh, volunteer to work at the Human Dolphin Foundation with a scientist named John Cunningham Lilly, MD. John Lilly. So I spent 28 months with John. Uh, he would want to do an experiment. He had spent the 60s, uh, part of the 60s, uh, doing experiments with bottlenose dolphins, including a living experiment uh, to try and teach a young dolphin, young male dolphin to uh, speak English. And I have recordings of that and there was some success and it was hugely interesting. A woman lived with his dolphin, Peter and Margaret. And he wanted to continue that work, but instead of trying to shout at the dolphin, uh, he wanted to let the dolphin have their head in the water and hear what we were saying. And so, and same thing with the dolphin with its head in the water and it doesn't open its mouth and blow it. It has two sound chambers like Think of it as bagpipe chambers, but more sophisticated, and it moves air back and forth and fibrillates it and makes sounds. So it has a stereo system and it also makes very high frequency sounds around 200 kilohertz, 10 times what we can hear that it uses for sonar. So John wanted a device built which would overlap those two acoustic spaces so that. Uh, he could find out if humans and dolphins could create a third language together, which was neither human nor dolphin. So I had studied all his work and they had done some really good research in the sixties. And I just uh, showed up in Malibu and called him and said I could build this thing. And he said, come and see me at a whiteboard in his kitchen. I showed him what I would do. And he said, when can you start? And I spent the next 28 months building this piece of equipment, a joint analog numeric understanding system, Janus, the god of the Roman god of the doorways, looking at the dolphins on one side, the humans on the other. I left that work in uh, 1979. I completed my part of it. I was very concerned uh, by that time <laughs> when we were looking at how would you bootstrap a language you could use symbols same, different, greater than, less than, 
one, two, three, four, five, counting up, counting down, true, false, all the logical stuff. And then you get into uh, Dennis thinking, where's the fish? Where's the pirate treasure? Where's this? Where's that? So very practical stuff. So I went to Dr. Lilly. I went to John. I said, John, what do you want to ask the dolphins? He says, I want to ask them if they made up a concept of God. <laughs> I went, shit. That's probably the right question to ask an alien. Big brain alien creature. And at the same time, the United States Navy and the intelligence community was around. They wanted to ask the dolphins where the Soviet submarines went, which was part of mutually assured destruction. It still has MAD. And if they, people could ask the, so, the whales where the subs were, that was one of the key strategic deterrents, then both sides would have to kill all the whales because you couldn't compromise the submarines. So I said, this is not the time for Dennis to be involved in this work. And I went back to working with humans. And I took a lot of that with me because to study the dolphins, how do you explain to dolphin, what's the difference between a black human and a white human and that yet we kill each other because the difference between a black human and a red human or a black human and a yellow human. And then try and explain why a, an Irish Catholic would would kill an Irish Protestant because they had a different nuanced belief system. How do you explain that to a dolphin? How do you explain to a dolphin what a president is and why there should be one? And I looked at what would be the fundamentals of a dolphin society and it's simply always make sure your brothers and sisters are breathing. And it's the same for us, isn't it? Make sure your brothers and sisters are breathing. How, how we've heard that lately, haven't we? I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I spent five years living in Asia Pacific, uh, which is certainly not a hardship, it's dangerous. But I had learned from the anthropologist when I was doing the dolphin work, I was studying social anthropology as well. I thought that was more practical for an engineer interested in marketing and development than an MBA. And uh, the key to anthropology, they asked the anthropologist that went into Papua New Guinea, which happened to be in my territory, when the headhunters were, and they still were there when I was there, but when they hadn't been exposed to Western society other than the bullshit of World War II, to meet them. And uh, they asked the anthropologists, what's the most important thing you learned when they came back? And they said, we learned to say, feed me before we said, kill me. Isn't that the essence of how we welcome people into these rooms? help them fit in, help them learn to say, feed me. Because the disease is killing them. Disease is killing me and I didn't even know it. I was completely oblivious.
what kept me in AA, I was going to game the system uh, or I was going to run it. And then I bumped into the 12 traditions. And that's the first thing I studied. And I went on a course on the 12 traditions, a weekend course, because I'm a corporate guy. I had created corporations. I had taken corporations apart. And these set of 12 traditions, get this, corporate poverty, seventh tradition, cor about corporate poverty. Bullshit. Our leaders are but trusted servants. The fuck can you run an organization as a servant? What is a servant? A trusted servant. I had no idea what that concept was. Nobody's in charge. Two million members in over a hundred countries and nobody wanted to join. How the fuck do you run an operation like that? Nobody's in charge. It's horseshit. Till you look at the dolphins, or till you look at a forest. Forest burns down. Does some nature spirit show up and said, "All right, I'm in charge here. You, dandelions, you're going to be over there. All right, uh, evergreens, evergreens, you're going to be over in that part." No. Give it the right conditions, and it will entirely restore itself it will evolve its own patch of habitat and the birds will come back and they, you do the right things and the right things happen. That's what John Lilly taught me. I said, how do you know when you're doing the wrong things? He says, oh, you'll get busted by the cosmic cops. <laughs> you'll get blocked. I'll get frustrated. I won't be able to move forward. That's time to take a look around and see <laughs> pull your head out of your ass, Dennis, and start pushing the rope and figure out what you're going to do here. My friend Lloyd, sober, stop, observe, breathe. And that brings me back to the now. Evaluate and respond. Be appropriate. That's the other thing the dolphins fascinated me always be appropriate and they've got a sense of humor they really do i mean it's life is and an occasion where a young male dolphin decided to no longer participate took a final breath sank to the bottom of the tank the humans tried to jump in the tank and left the dolphin and the other dolphins blocked them, respecting that that dolphin had made a decision to no longer participate. He wasn't inebriated, wasn't on drugs, not going on, and the others respected that. My, uh, one of my great spiritual teachers was a U.S. Marine that came and fought, he was 25 years old, Guadalcanal, the shithole in the Pacific. And he had 10 years of migraine headaches after that because he couldn't get the smell of death out of his nose. 
and he sunk down to street alcoholic and he's in front of the VA and he can't even afford a cigarette and he goes in and they send him off to treatment and he gets it, he makes it. And years later, he said he doesn't, doesn't believe that anybody is there with, with stayed in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, why do you think that is? He said, I, he says, I don't believe they were able to stay surrendered. Semper Fi, do or die. This is an old Marine. Surrendered doesn't mean giving up. Surrendered means here I am. This is reality. I accept things just the way they are. I don't agree with them necessarily. I don't disagree with them. Here I am. That's all I know to be true. Here I am. Evaluate and respond. It's like the dolphin. They have to take breath like that. They can't just breathe unconsciously the way we humans do until we encounter Hatha yoga, which is the dolphins. They never, their brain never sleeps. Not quite true, but it's two, four, seven. They're pretty well there because if you're sound asleep and you're breathing and you're a mammal in the ocean, you're going to drown. So you can't have an automatic breathing system. You've got to consciously take each breath and other dolphins will find out if you're breathing and if you aren't properly, they'll hold you to the surface unless you ask them not to. I've worked with people in this program and it's been the greatest gift, uh, fifth steps, when somebody brings that gift to you, to me, getting to know them and through them getting to know myself because I didn't even know I had, oh, oh yeah, oh, oh, that's what that is in me, thank you. I sponsored priests and I sponsored atheists. And it wasn't until I sponsored an atheist that I really woke up in Alcoholics Anonymous to invisible minorities and how cruel we could be and how unthinking we could be, how fucking stupid we could be and how unkind we could be and how unwelcoming we could be and not understanding that our unity comes through our diversity, not through our conformity. Conformity merely makes us brittle. I had the opportunity when I was doing my corporate work with uh, mentoring uh, minorities and women in the corporate, putting those programs together and doing it I was sent off to spend uh, three or four days with uh, Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian. No idea who he was. I just showed up. Turns out he was one of Martin Luther King's lieutenants. And he's very famous. And he was righteous. And he was a man. And he, a true man in every sense of being a good man, and being a real man and being an appropriate man. And he asked me to look inside of myself and look for my prejudice. I looked at him, I said, that 
come from Canada. We didn't have any prejudice. We didn't have any black people. And uh, that's how naive I was. And I'm sponsoring programs, blah, blah, blah. He said, think about it. And I did. And it turns out it got me back. And there I am, a little Roman Catholic kid sitting in grade one or two. And there's a map at the front of the room. And then part of it's pink. And then there's green parts and yellow parts. And the net is that uh, uh, we got to turn the whole thing pink because these are people that are not going to get to heaven because they haven't been baptized. We're going to have to save the money for the mission so we can go out and take them, uh, blah, 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 blah. And we, they. We go to heaven, we're baptized, they. They go to limbo. They go nowhere. Imagine. And I'm taught, we, they. Lifeboats and storms and secular AA, this beautiful rules are there's no rules. Don't harm self or others. Bring your belief system. Share it. It's yours. Share the beauty of our brokenness. That wonderful Japanese ceremony of using gold in the lacquer to put the broken pottery back together and that's us and our brokenness becomes part of our beauty. It is us, it's our character. And recently I bumped into Thich Nhat Hanh's Five Remembrances. And especially for we in this part of the eldering journey and all of us on this journey, but particularly because now I'm having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps with the assistance of these steps, I am, a, I am spiritually awake and I am prepared to look forward to be present at the time of departure and see if it avails me the opportunity to influence the next iteration. I'd like to try coming back as a dolphin if you get to revisit Spaceship Earth and make those kinds of choices. But if so, I just like to be available for it. If there is a, 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 a genital space monkey running this whole thing, then I'll deal with that at the time. I will not be pleased and it will not be a happy meeting of the two of us. But if that's the, the, the hymn God that we've invented, fine. So the five remembrances, number one, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. Number two, I am the nature, I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love 
are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. And finally, and this is us. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. And that's what I will present if there's to be a presentation at the end of this journey. And I don't believe this journey ends. I believe the earth suit stays, yes, but that unique spirit that is in each of us that is separated from great spirit. As my Rishi Shinrui <laughs> doesn't matter his name, <laughs> he likened us to uh, water coming over a waterfall a hundred feet high. And as it comes over, some of it separates into droplets at the top, little misty bits of H2O that float off into their own experience and float and bump and bang and finally rejoin the stream. Whatever that stream is, that stream of spirit, which persists. I love you. I really do love you. I mean that in the deepest sense of the word. Thank you for the privilege and the honor of gracing me with your attention for an hour or so.